Today's episode is also a video interview on my YouTube channel, which you can find by going to YouTube and searching out Eric Hunley, or just go to erichunley.com and it'll take you right there. I also have a live stream, including amazing guests like Chase Hughes, Scott Rouse, Greg Hartley, and Mark Bowden, who make up the behavior panel, and other brilliant minds who are in the body language business, persuasion, and other disciplines. I also had a live stream with today's guest, Tracy Walter, and former guest Sarah Carlson on the same episode. Again, check it out, youtube.com, look for Eric Hunley or erichunley.com. And for now, I bring you Tracy Walder. My name is Eric Hunley, and this is Unstructured, where we have dynamic and formal conversations with some amazing people. Today, we are joined by Tracy Walder. Now, Tracy didn't want to be just one three-letter agency. She decided she wanted to try a couple of them out and Eventually got bored and only went with the CIA and the FBI. How are you doing today, Tracy? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you. And your tenure, especially at the CIA, was really at a, a consequential time. Um, when reading your book and going on, am I to understand that you had just literally been assigned in a special department for Middle Eastern terrorism on September 10th, 2001? Yes. So I had I was assigned to the Counterterrorism Center when I started at the agency. So in like mm-hmm. June of 2000. And then I worked I, I began work in a special program um, the day before September 11th. Which is just a crazy coincidence timing for sure. Yes. <laughs> Very crazy coincidence. Now, you spent a lot of time um, talking about your time in the I, I think you called it the vault. Yes. And that was really fascinating, the different people who um, all went through there. Was there anyone that you didn't mention by chance? Like, I'm curious, uh, my my senator was John McCain, as an example. Did he ever find his way through? It's hard to say because senators came, you know, at different times throughout the day. So if oh, I sure. didn't happen to be on on duty that particular time, then I wouldn't have necessarily met who came through, like, that day. I mean, there were some days I was on duty at, you know, 2 a.m. and most senators weren't coming in (laughs) at that time. So he may very well have, Mm -hmm. but not, you know, personally, because I definitely would have remembered McCain. I mean, he's for sure. Um, He he I do not recall meeting him and coming through. Other senators did, um, but not McCain. I just don't want to misspeak because he may have absolutely come through. Just not when I was on duty. Makes sense now. When you were there at two in the morning and midnight and all that, that was kind of your working midday in the Middle East, so to speak, right? Yes. Yes. I want to jump around a little bit just because I'm interested in things. I've had um, Tom Picora on, who was a CIA security officer, and he described the time like right, I think, as you started as the um, cocktail circuit in the CIA with everything was very Soviet oriented and mm-hmm. there was kind of a divide between the, the newer counterterrorism side and the older, shall we say, Soviet era side. Did you find any of that or were you just right in the department and didn't really see that? So I didn't see that because I went straight into the counterterrorism center, but I think 
like a lot of times I'll get, you know, oh, you must have been awesome, you know, to be in the counterterrorism center. But we have to remember, I started before September 11th. And so mm-hmm. this is going to I don't mean to degrade myself. That's not, not what I mean. But like the, the real talent and people who had been at the agency for decades were not necessarily in the counterterrorism center because that really wasn't the focus of the intelligence gathering mission at the time. Um, so yes, a lot of them were in the Russia group or really even Latin America too. There was still kind of some holdout um, from there. Um, and it's not to say the folks in CTC were incompetent. We definitely were not. But it was just that I think back in the late 90s, you know, if, if people wanted to go to the agency, that's where they wanted to work, right? They didn't. Now I think, you know, people want to work counterterrorism. I just think sure. it's a different era. But I didn't. Yes, it was kind of known at that as, as that time period. He's correct. But I think I was really getting towards the end of it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, CIA at that time was recognizing the need for centers rather than just straight, you know, departments that only worked one country. So they were sort of evolving at that time. OK, that makes it makes total sense. And obviously, people who are in the department would probably want to be in whichever I think you call them houses or yeah, what, hot, you know, would, where they have a career advancement possibilities or whatever is the hot course. ticket. Yes, so. of course. So what was that like then to kind of because you were relatively new, right? It was within your first couple of years that all of a sudden the world was ripped apart. I mean, everything it, changed. Yeah. So it was within what, 14 months, 15 months of me starting. Um, and so I think that that's, you know, a lot of people think, well, how, how did you get to have all these great experiences or, you know, win awards or those kinds of things. But I think it was because of where I happened to be. You're just moving so fast, right? You're just, everything's so quick. And so, and you're just, you're all of a sudden an expert at something. Um, when I definitely don't claim to be <laughs> or have been, um, at that time. Right. And so I think that sort of catapulted my career, I guess, um, mm-hmm. you know, sort of right front center to what the agency's mission was at the time. So I, I think I approached it with, with sadness, mm-hmm. motivation and excitement all at the same time. I don't, I don't well, know. I, I would say in all fairness, you were the expert though. I mean, because you were in the middle of the only people who were really studying that, that was your gig. So when it tore apart, who were they going to look to? You know, you might not have had the experience, but you had the very specified knowledge. Yes, I just I like to credit. I mean, there were women who were in the counterterrorism center before I was. Uh, There were men who were there before I was. And so, you know, I sort of looked up to them Mm -hmm. um, a little bit. I mean, yes, I I guess I became the expert. I just I don't know. I never refer to myself as that. but I guess I am. (laughs) Well, you should never run away from it, especially... (laughs) With your varied background, I mean, and, and now you're a professor, right? So yes. That's an expert. But I do want to ask you, because I am not of uh, the CIA. I was in the Army for a few minutes, but thank I don't... Thank you for your service. Oh, thank you. Um, I don't know, though, the different factors. So can you explain the difference? You were a CIA operations officer, and how is that different than, say, an analyst or a security officer? Sure. So um, I'll start off with analysts first, Mm -hmm. because that was basically my counterpart, um, if you will. So the CIA is sort of divided up into a couple different um, divisions. And, you know, you have 
your analysts that, to be honest with you, I was very unqualified to be an analyst. Those are people that have PhDs in mm. South Korean political history or, you know, very specialized, you know, written books, articles, you know, on these issues. And that was definitely not me, you know, with my bachelor's in history, which is a very broad mm -hmm. um, sort of degree. So I knew going in that I wasn't going to fit there because it just wasn't it wasn't my qualifications. Um, and so I wasn't going to go into the directorate of science and technology because also my degree was not in, um, you know, the sciences, engineering, physics, those kinds of things. So I knew that wasn't going to be an appropriate place for me. So I was on the operations side, um, which means, you know, I collected human intelligence uh, through, you know, the use of assets um, mm -hmm. and those kinds of things. So and I think to be honest with you, that probably fit my qualifications and skill set best. It's not it's not because they're all unqualified and just, you know, have the bachelor's degree. But I think I had a broad degree. Um, mm -hmm. I think personality wise, it, it fit me best. Um, security officers, uh, and I'm, I'm going to be very like frank. I don't know um, too much about them. I know, you know, part of them is to keep us safe. Um, <laughs> uh, CIA <laughs> officers, both right. when we're overseas and when we're in headquarters um, at Langley. So I hope that helps kind of Okay, so correct me. Your job then is to collect the intelligence for the analyst to analyze. Absolutely, you've got it. Okay, that's <laughs> that's um, a nice succinct uh, view of it, and I am I was so curious about it because everything's so spooky and secret, and it's yes. <laughs> fun to have kind of a general idea. And I, how about with the targeting officer or targeteer? Uh, uh, do you have a little crossover with that as well? Well, so that would have been a little bit later in my career. So targeting officers, a, a lot of new things came out of September 11th um, mm -hmm. because obviously we had new needs, right? And new new ways to collect things. And targeting officers were actually a, a newer thing. That, uh, that position when I started at the agency wasn't there. Mm -hmm. um, so uh targeting officers most of them were on the analytical side because they were taking different intelligence from lots of different methods not just from the ops people um mm -hmm. and analyzing that and focusing really on just one person um versus sort of a broad um topic so they were relatively new um after September 11th it just wasn't a position that they had when i started but you were kind of, I know you can't get into details, but well, your time in the vault was on some relatively new procedures <laughs> yourself, correct? Um, yes. I was, that was a chapter that I was very surprised that the CIA included, if you want me to be perfectly honest with you. I'm very surprised they allowed me to put it in um, because I don't think that the program's been uh, declassified yet. But I feel like if you read it, you could probably understand what I was doing. Um, but, but um, yes, it was new. Is it is it one of those things like, let me see, there's this place called Camp Peary that's right up the road from me that – Nobody seems to talk about, but everybody seems to have heard of called a farm. Is it one of those? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but speaking of the book, one thing that was, it was kind of amusing, but it kind of drove me crazy at the same time. And I was wondering if it was a statement from you to leave them in. And that was, it was full of word redacted CIA review. 
Section redacted, CIA review. Why did you leave that in? Were you trying to show that you were really constrained with what you're trying to say? So that actually wasn't my call. That was my editor's call. Um, so what had happened was, is, uh, and I think you probably know this, that if we write books, we have to send them to the CIA for review mm-hmm. um, because we all sign non-disclosures. So I um, sent my book in. Um, <clears throat> and just so you know, what you see of my book right now is actually five full rewrites of my book. <laughs> Oh, full rewrites, um, so not just full rewrites. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. And so I, it's not like I just left them in to be easy. Um, I had like six chapters that were completely blacked out. Um, mm. So I had to keep rewriting. They don't tell you why. So I'd rewrite, resubmit, come back, rewrite, resubmit, come back, rewrite, resubmit, come back. And That's so crazy. Why wouldn't they tell? I mean, it would seem more efficient to just say, look. <laughs> Remove that reference to a statue I mean, name. I don't disagree with you. One of the things that I had done, though, that I do think saved me a little bit um, was that I read every single book that had been published by somebody that was on the op side of the CIA. And I footnoted <laughs> it for them when I found something. Um, so like my crash and bang chapter, they had completely redacted it, but I appealed it and I won. And so that's why it's in there. Um, <clears throat> and so that's what people don't realize. They think I just like left it in for show and I didn't. So each time you get it back, you you resend it to a different person to review it. And that person can send it back to you and say, we're going to d- completely deny you publication of this book. And obviously, you know, we don't want that to happen. And so by the fifth time, my editor was like, we don't want to keep taking this risk of it being totally denied um, where they have it now. You can you can understand the book. Um, mm. So we're going to actually publish it the way that it is now. So that actually wasn't a me call. That was a them call. <laughs> okay. I mean, and I'm not necessarily against it. I, I just didn't know if it, it, because it's almost a statement in of itself. Oh, I didn't look at it that way. Yeah, no, I get a lot of questions like about it. And I think, you know, people just the process, right? Like what you wouldn't necessarily sure. know. And so it's a cool opportunity for me to be able to explain sort of why. Oh yeah, I had a previous guest on Sarah Carlson. I think hers yes. got, I think hers got completely approved and then rejected after the fact. Correct. And so that was what we were. Um, and Sarah is a great friend of mine. She's amazing, and her book is amazing. And she, um, what happened to her is exactly what I didn't want to have happen to me. It was being rejected after the fact, which is why it got approved, and we sent it out. <laughs> Print it now. Yes. <laughs> Well, and uh, lately we actually are going through that with the Ambassador Bolton, I believe, correct? That I think his got through. Or- his got through, but then it was there was a lawsuit after it but came out and they froze. Right? Yes. And yes. So similar. I think, but I think they realized like he had gone through the right processes and he wasn't violating any national security issues and that like banning the book would violate his freedom of speech. I, I think that I, I can't recall if that's exactly what happened, but I, I think that that's, I don't know. Okay. Well, some of the book now, some of it just seemed almost arbitrary that it was redacted. Like, <laughs> and I, I mean, I'm not going to ask you to reveal great secrets. Or no, you, you had people like YY and H and I'm going, that's 2003. Is YY still active out there or is it somebody who's been arrested and put away somewhere? And you don't have to reveal their name, but it just, I kind of look at, I'm like, I'm sure they're probably known. 
there's probably stories that have been written about them in the papers somewhere. Um, so that was something that I had to work with my publisher's attorney on. Um, mm-hmm. If they were dead, <laughs> I could I could put their name. So like I think Zarkawi's name is in there because he's yes. dead. Um, uh, so or had been arrested and tried and convicted, I could put their name in. Um, but if they were still around, <laughs> um, okay. there was like a couple stipulations that I had. If they were like still around, hadn't been convicted, you know, a couple thresholds. Um, then I had to significantly change their name to the point that no one would recall, like be able to connect them. Okay. That's fair. And how about a country in Africa? Yeah. So what had happened there was um, I finally figured out why things were being redacted. <laughs> um, it took mm-hmm. me up to like time three to figure out because, <laughs> you know, they don't tell you. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what happened was, is I was being too locational um, with my information and because when I traveled to different countries, I was in alias. So theoretically, I was never there. So I couldn't say okay. what country I had been in. And there was way too much revealing information about that country. And once I got wise to that, it was much easier um, rewriting things. So I could put all country in Africa. I could put a war zone. I could put, I still think you can tell where I am in lots of places, but mm-hmm. that I don't view that as my problem because they're the ones that did the redacting. Well, that's okay. That that's fair then, uh, and it makes yes. more sense because I was yes. thinking, uh, well, in chapter ten, Malibu Barbie. I think you talked mm-hmm. about an African country, and then you mentioned uh, five heads that were floating. And I'm going. Well, if I really started looking, there had to be a terrorist attack that involved five suicide bombers. I'm assuming that it was in a newspaper somewhere, or it was written up, or were you having to cover texts that were not actually publicized or ever revealed? I don't think I can answer that question. I'm so sorry. <laughs> okay, well, no worries. I'm, I'm going to spin off. I'm to, sorry. I'm going to spin off to another one because it, it's, okay. a, it's a statement you've said before, and you can be vaguer on this one. You okay. mentioned that the CIA is only known for its failures, but you personally have thwarted attacks, and mm-hmm. you know of others. Have more attacks been thwarted than we realize? I personally believe so just from my own experiences. And that's why I do think the agency gets a bad rap sometimes, right? Because if something goes wrong, that's really what makes it all over the news, not the things that go right. The things that go right are usually remain classified, um, which is why I couldn't be more specific in some of the things that I was involved in thwarting. Um, So, yes. Okay. So, your goal as an agency is to look like the Maytag repairman with your feet up on the desk doing nothing. Exactly. <laughs> I work in IT, so I, I, I kind of understand it. It, it is a, a weird conundrum that if something's breaking, then you're a failure, but if everything's working right, then you're lazy. <laughs> yes, that sounds, that sounds like you hit the nail right on the head there. Okay, one other thing, and... I thought it was very interesting. What's up with the no one works on Sundays? I know. Um, A lot of people have been really angry about that. I mean, and rightfully so. um, Mm -hmm. They should be. Um, Yeah. uh, I think that has changed because we have to remember that statement. And I think I say in my book that it was a European um, service. Mm -hmm. Um, That statement was before things like Charlie Hebdo and before uh, um, 
do you see what I'm saying? So I think sure. I think the Europeans at that time didn't feel as under attack um, mm-hmm. as as we did. I have a feeling that this service would not have answered that way now. Um, but I still think it was probably inappropriate, um, you know, to tell me that and we ended up losing the guy uh, mm-hmm. because you know they wouldn't run surveillance on him uh, in their their own country. And yes, that was that was one of many things that would frustrate me sometimes. Um, some European services were incredible, mm-hmm. you know, to work with. Others were difficult. And also, you have to remember, it was a tough time. Um, Europeans weren't like loving on us at this this point in time, you know, because we're dealing with um, we're starting to get into sort of the Iraq war and, mm. you know, it was just everything was a mess diplomatically. Well, it's weird that um, they wouldn't be more prepared. I understand that this is post 9-11, but before 9-11, the jackal, for example, never hit the United States directly. All of his work was in Europe and other countries. Most terrorism acts, can we talk about Munich Olympics? You know, all this was actually in Europe and, you know, obviously the Middle East as well. So I do, I do, I find it odd still. I think, I'm just thinking about, I don't know for sure. sure. I'm, I'm just thinking, I think too, at this point in time, in the early 2000s, the EU, which I know sounds strange today, the EU was like a new thing. A relatively new thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that they weren't used to like working together <laughs> um, and we're not used to realizing that if an attack and I'm making these countries up, if an attack happens in uh, France, that, sure. the, uh, you know, another attack could happen, you know, in Spain, like right next door. Mm. And I think they had been in an environment of like almost isolation, right? Their own coinage, their own everything. And so I think now we're asking them to work together particularly in counterterrorism, because it's like this transnational issue. And I just don't think they were used to that. Do you think that the EU actually, in fact, um, caused even more of it because of opening the borders and having easier transport between the different countries where they could attack more comfortably? I personally do not. Um, Because if you look at most of the attacks that have happened, so I'm just thinking, what, like Spain, France, Mm -hmm. Belgium, Germany, um, most of them were not by people that had like crossed borders. They were by folks who had immigrated to that specific country, you know, from wherever. A lot of it's North Africans, but you know, countries like that, that's not unusual. They've always had high immigration from those those countries just because of proximity. I'm not to say that, you know, it's all North no, Africans commit these attacks. That's not what I'm saying. But if you look at the people that have perpetrated those things, I think there's just one time where it's been a border crossing. Um, and I can't remember which time that was, but I, was, I read a bunch of articles about it where it was, you know, he's getting through borders. Um, I really don't think so. I don't think the EU has made it easier for that. Okay. And it, another paradox is I've read before, and you can, you know, obviously correct me quickly, that the average terrorist um, is not necessarily who you would think that, they are not um, necessarily refugees who are growing up in camps that a lot of them are upper middle class to very wealthy, like bin Laden, um, well-educated and not that dissimilar to the anarchists that were found here in the United States in the um, 1900s to 1930s time frame. I don't disagree with that, um, especially if you look at sort of Al-Qaeda or ISIS or, you know, the, I'm talking about the upper echelons of those right. organizations. I'm not talking about the foot footmen because that's that's a different group of people. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, a lot of people ask me, you know, when you spoke to terrorists, don't you have to have a translator? No, I don't, because all of them went to college here in the United States. They all speak English. Um, and you have to have money to be able to do that, you know, from Egypt or, you know, whatever foreign country you're in. And so I do think that that is sort of a, a, a misconception um, mm-hmm. of particularly the upper administrative levels, I guess. Right. Now, I kind of... Um... I'm curious about it because if we always are thinking it's one thing and it's quite often a, another, it, it allows for them to slip by easier. And that's actually why. Um, so I, I'm a teacher now, and so I added. Mm-hmm. I, I taught a class for ten years um, at all girls school on um, terrorism, national security, and foreign policy. And one of the things that I added actually uh, was a unit on domestic terrorism um, mm-hmm. because I think what I was seeing with my students is they were thinking that a terrorist had to come from over there. Um, right. And, you know, these are kids, I'm in my forties and, but these are kids that didn't know that Oklahoma city happened. Um, you know, didn't know that Ruby Ridge or Waco or those things had happened. And that's a problem. And I think. Sure. In South Carolina. Need, uh, yeah. And I think they needed to understand sort of where that came from um, as well. And that we have an issue it's not just an over there problem. It's a here problem too. It's an everywhere problem. And that's what I was trying to get them to. And actually on that note, are you concerned about, I personally am, I'm looking at, um, we'll say that there are a lot of protests that are going on right now, but it's not only protests. There are some pretty bad actors who have infiltrated, who are doing some nasty things, setting fires, shooting, um, causing genuine damage. What I mean, you would call terrorism. Are are you reading about that at all currently? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think part of the problem, I mean, this is, I guess, the FBI and me talking. Is, no, I, sure. I think part part of the problem, um, you know, if we if you look at. We don't have and, and people disagree with me on this and I and I get it and that's totally fine, mm-hmm. but we don't have a federal statute that labels these folks as terrorists. Mm-hmm. That does. We don't have that. <laughs> I know that's shocking. And that's no, like I've the heard first, that and that's actually the first step. Um, if we're not labeling their behavior as terroristic, public support is never going to see it as terroristic because there's no way to charge them federally um, as terrorists. Now, I'm mm-hmm. sure some states have you know terrorist terrorism laws and those kinds of things, but I think that's problem number one, is that it's by by doing that, we're saying, oh, no, 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 these folks, what they're doing is not terrorism. What those folks from the Middle East is do- are doing is terrorism. But really, it's the same thing sure. um, and the same goal. You're trying to disrupt political whatever, you know, messages. And so I, I, I think we need to start by being able to label them and charge them with terrorism. Well, I, mean, I definitely don't ask. Um, I mean, I- the people in Oklahoma don't feel any different than an embassy in the Middle East. And I've, I've had Fred Burton on, and he even talked about how during the Oklahoma City bombing, they literally said, this is definitely Middle Eastern terrorism to start. They they yes. were sure because it was I so I think Clinton similar. even got on TV and said that it was, I watched an interview where I believe he said it was Middle Eastern terrorism. Yeah, they thought it was Hezbollah because yeah. uh, the building went and was sheared off in the exact yep. same manner and everything else. So, that's terrorism. You don't have to 
qualify it uh, with Middle Eastern. But he was never charged with terrorism. No, no. He had enough murders to cover that. And I understand that. Look, he was going to go away either way (laughs) um, for life. But I think public perception, it becomes a problem when we don't see these activities as terroristic as something else, murder, right? Well, isn't it the same thing? (laughs) In my opinion, it is. Yeah, well, I guess, and we can get into the other semantics, because, like, a hate crime, well, technically, isn't every murder kind of a hate crime, in a sense? I know we qualify it by saying that that's a protected class, but it's a hate crime. It's an interesting terminology. So that would sort of be, I guess, taking the terrorism and murders, it's adding another level to the act. Or maybe a RICO charge to go on top of murder charges, or something like that. Would that be... Mm -hmm. Good that's, analogy. I think so, yes. And maybe that's an approach too, uh, kind of a RICO type of scenario because a lot of. Where you add terrorism. more, which, what they did with the Varsity Blues case, basically, with Lori Laughlin and all of them, they added a RICO charge um, to it okay. to make their sentence more hefty. Are you able to use the RICO type of scenario too for fighting? Now I'm going to FBI again because I know there are different rules. And what gets interesting, I've talked to a bunch of FBI people, and a big difference between FBI and CIA is you actually can go after American citizens because yes, you're looking that's to correct. arrest. Well, CIA can't. I mean, everything I've read, you know, your hands are tied. You, correct. If you're going to arrest a citizen, you better find an FBI agent or somebody around. That's not your job. Correct. So is like a RICO statute, I know they're using it for um, like human trafficking as a methodology to kind of wind, roll up a network. Like if you can find their money, you can get a wiretap due to the RICO charges from, you know, how do they get the money from one state to another? Oh, now it's federal. Can the same thing be done for terrorism? You mean adding a terrorism charge? Yeah, or just, or using like a similar principle to try to roll up the organization. Because Well, that's what they've done. I think in some cases they've been able to add terrorism to, and it's like an additional eight years or something like that. It depends on the um, severity of what they did. But I know that they've been able to do that, but it's been mostly with um, Middle Eastern terrorism networks that they've done that here. Um, I would like to see them do that with domestic terrorists. Oh, I would too. I, I feel like... And I don't know, maybe something is being done. I, I feel very frustrated yeah. seeing that police cars are being burned up and, you know, some very real damage is being done. And I feel like some people are indulging it, which is very irritating. And I can't help but wonder, is this a case where we're just going to roll them up and then we'll have a nice trial? Because I feel like there needs to be a trial so everybody can see. This person did this crime. It is a crime, and they are charged accordingly in front of the public. Unfortunately, I think, I mean, I don't disagree with you. I'm just thinking about the reality of the situation, and I just don't think they're going to do that um, because of the narrative that's kind of out right now. I think that's a problem. Um, Do I think these people need to be held accountable? I do. But But that's an interesting case because did you – not in the CIA have to deal with the narrative yourself. Um, uh, you mentioned Iraq. It was made life uh, pretty difficult for you. I think you were very clear that you did not feel like the information you supplied, at least, 
was used in a um, clear manner um, or fair manner to get us into Iraq. Now, there could be other information, but the information that you personally saw or were involved in collecting, I think you stated was misused. Is that fair? Well, actually, um, it's funny you mentioned that because last week, uh, Colin Powell was interviewed in the New York Times and admitted to it. Oh. Yay. I felt so vindicated <laughs> um, that he kind of wished that he had never done what he did um, and that they doctored information. He he actually admitted it. So I know I felt um, a sense wow. of. Yeah. Um, there be, I believe it's because uh, one of the writers of the New York Times is writing a book about him or it's coming mm-hmm. out. And I think this was like a lead up piece. Mm-hmm. Um, to it. So, I mean, in a way I had a lot more respect for him because it takes a big person to admit, um, you know, that they've done something wrong. Um, and that's what I was, you know, my book, I was debating whether or not to put all of that in, um, right. because I don't have a political agenda in my book. You know, I've, I've voted mm-hmm. for Republicans. I've voted for Democrats. Um, I'm not registered either party. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, I did not want it to come off as that I had a political agenda. I was just stating the facts. And that's why I was, you know, so supportive of our invasion of Afghanistan, um, you know, under Bush. Fully supported that, but then didn't support um, the war in Iraq um, because of the information. Was it a case of um, confirmation bias just run amok? I mean, where it was like we were so certain or people involved were so certain that – he was involved that it didn't really matter what anybody said. We're going to finish that job. That, that, that was do you mean hanging within out there. The, with do Saddam. you mean within the, the administration or yeah. do you mean within the agency? I'm going to say within the administration because I don't yeah. think that the, from what you've written, you're not saying the agency was supportive of that. So no, I'll say I administration don't. and maybe Defense Department. I think it was more from the administration. Maybe less the Defense Department, more the administration. Um, but again, I don't want to throw the whole administration under the bus because I think they did some really great things. Right. Um, you know, so it's like this hard, weird <laughs> balance, right, to walk. But I, I do think that they were kind of looking for just anything. Um, and the reality is, is, you know, terrorism at the time was the buzzword mm-hmm. of the day. And so I think if you connected Hussein to Zarqawi at that time, you know, a terrorist, mm-hmm. then... Wonderful. <laughs> Yay. Terrorism. You'll get the public support that you need um, to declare war. But it turns out from what I've seen by taking him out because he was a brutal, horrible dictator who kept his thumb down on everybody that that kind of was like opening a can with all kinds of things coming out just total can of worms. As soon as he was removed from the lid, I don't know that that's dissimilar to what happened with Libya. So it's not. So for me, um, I give a lot of talks and, you know, in those uh, people ask me in the talks to outline what I think are like the largest threats just in mm-hmm. regards to terrorism or even bio stuff. Cause I worked at WMDs. Um, I personally feel that the greatest threat to terror, like the greatest multiplier of terrorists and terrorism um, are failed states. And mm-hmm. I think I am not advocating Saddam Hussein as being this like amazing no, dictator. No. That's not what I'm doing. Right. 
But you had a dictator who would have never allowed terrorists in his country because that undermines his authority. Right. right. And so, yes, his people were suffering. Absolutely. But there, it wouldn't have happened. They would have been competing with him for power. And there's just no way um, that he would have allowed that. So you take him out and you're right. All the floodgates open now because the U.S. at that time was shoring things up in Afghanistan. Um, you know, we had installed Hamid Karzai. It was just a much firmer leadership. So those people needed a place to go. Iraq seemed wonderful. There's no leader. Why not? And I think if you look at Libya, really all the North African countries after the Arab Spring, all of those dictators fell. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing, but because no one really followed in that place, what did we expect um, was going to sort of come out out of that? And I think failed states is like the largest problem right now. If we want to fix terrorism, we need to fix failed states. I had a speechwriter on and he pointed out that Arab Spring is one of the most beautifully phrased terms out there because it sounds so fresh and clean yes. and wonderful. <laughs> and it's easy to know it's all about messaging and people get behind Arab Spring, something new. But what it people in fact is, up. right, yes. in fact is, is that in an anarchy, who's going to be the winner? Who's going to survive? We saw that with the Soviet Union falling too, right? All the um, organized crime right. came all, up. All the arcs and mafia. And yes, absolutely. You're right. So in your view, because you've seen the other side of it, um, I don't want to look like a complete isolationist head in my sand, in the <laughs> sand, but w what do we do? Now, we're, we're at fault for a lot of things that are kind of oh, uncorked, I, I, but how do we roll this back do we just keep stepping back and just let things settle down or maybe let some things play out what what do we do it's hard because i think a lot of you know particularly with the arab spring or I am the arab spring mostly i mean i think part of that were the people right who were upset with how leaders that had really been set up some of them, you know, from us. Sure. Egypt, Again, right? we're, we're in there. We helped Saddam. We helped <laughs> them poison Iran. We created the Taliban, you know, like we, we created the, Laden. the Shah situation. I mean, you know, we <laughs> have created all of these things. Um, so I, I, and this sounds like really Pollyanna, and I certainly don't mean it to because I'm not, <laughs> not that much of an optimist. And <laughs> I think that um, what was really great about, um, Bush Sr., Clinton, Bush Jr., and the Obama administrations, they all had programs to help address failed states. So mm -hmm. failed states are just basically not meeting the basic needs of their people, right? Like that's like the bottom line, what they are. Mm -hmm. And so they had programs in place not to instill new leaders, but to help people who were looking like they could be leaders you know, give people basic access to health care, school, like those kinds of things. That program has since been completely cut, um, which I thought is a bummer because it seems like it's transcended different presidents of different parties, which is great. It tells me that they all thought it was like a good program. Um, I personally would like to see that brought back. Um, I don't know that we can ever like just back out of all of these. I, I mean, because we we backed out of Afghanistan and that didn't, is, is not going well, let's be honest. Um, maybe just not getting involved in the first place. Well, but, I guess. <laughs> Obviously, that's our first choice. And, and in fairness, we can beat on Winston Churchill a little bit and the map makers. 
that created a lot of the mess because they said, oh, there's a river there. That'll be a border. There's right. a and mountain th- there. There will be a border. They right. didn't really bother worrying about the people. They just said, okay, that that lines up pretty well. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I think that that's where a lot of this started because these people have had um, millennia of living and relationships, good and bad, with it, with one another that go way back. And they also are generational thinkers and not election thinkers. Right. I agree. Okay. So on that note, we're doomed there. Um, we're going <laughs> to move forward to another cheery subject because oh, I think okay. you were especially qualified. China. <laughs> and I have lots of feelings. Yes. Oh, good. I, feelings are fun. Feelings are entertaining. How do you feel then about China? Because I see them as one of the biggest threats against us in history, possibly worse than the Soviet Union ever was. They have, in my mind, been actively trying to attack us covertly through espionage and whatever else for a minimum of 20 years. Oh, yeah. So, um, I think you're asking me that because I worked Chinese counterintelligence at the FBI. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. So when I was a special agent there, I was assigned to um, work a really big case, actually, um, at the FBI. Mm -hmm. Unbeknownst to me, I didn't really, to be honest with you, I'd spent so much time working counterterrorism. I I really sort of had tunnel vision, right? Like I Mm -hmm. didn't, this sounds terrible, but my job was the Middle East. So I really wasn't concerning myself with what the Chinese were doing because there were people at the agency I would hope doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, when I got to the FBI um, and the case I learned, he's since been tried, convicted, all of that. Right. Um, I personally it's upsetting to me and I, I don't mean to get really riled up. But what's been frustrating to me is the politicalization of how you must feel about the Chinese or the Russians or the this. Mm-hmm. And that is so upsetting to me. Why is that political? Like. I'm coming at it from a lived experience. Like I worked Chinese counterintelligence as a special agent at the FBI. I put handcuffs Mm -hmm. on these people. I investigated the cases. This has nothing to do with my political. Right. Well, it's not about the people. I think the people mix it up and this bothers me. And they like to say you're racist. If you go and the truth is it is. No, we're upset with the country. It's really upsetting to me because I'll get, oh, you must hate this group or you must hate this group. And a lot of times people too will think I'm um, Islamophobic, which I'm actually not. And in my book, I talk about how beautiful like it is um, as a Jew and how much I loved it. And so once people read it, they realize I'm not, but I always feel like when I say what my lived experience is, I have to caveat it. And that pisses me off. (laughs) Uh, Mm -hmm. Sorry, but um, no, I totally think the Chinese are a huge, huge threat and I think they can do far more danger to us than mm-hmm. Russia ever will, to be totally honest with you. I'm not saying we should not. No, Russia's attention. been weakened. I mean, that yeah. actually worked. <laughs> but, you know, the Chinese have hacked the Pentagon. The Chinese have hacked all kinds of things. I do not feel, though, that the Chinese are trying to, like, nuke the United States. That's no, no, not no, 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 no. That's not the uh, Well, there's sometimes this, like, miss, um they miscategorize like what they're trying to do. I mean, they are, in my opinion, 
well, in fact, I know because I investigated the case, <laughs> they are stealing our stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't even know that they're stealing it to attack us with it. They want um, to be us. Well, and I think part of why and part of this is um, and I, I think of the FBI when I was there, they didn't do the best job at this is of teaching us cultural understanding. Um, mm. The CIA did a great job of that. It's the FBI, not so much. And that might be just because it's law enforcement. It's different. Sure. Um, yeah. But I think you have to understand the culture. Um, everyone who we rounded up um, were staunch Maoists, you know, meaning they came of age, you know, in the Mao CCP um, mm-hmm. regime. You are not in China encouraged to have individual think and creativity. No, it's collectivist. It's collectivism. It's groupthink, right? It's and so it actually goes before Mao, though, because in China they have rice paddies, and the way the water flows, you have to get along with your neighbor because the water has to run from their land to your land. So there, there's a, a, a culturally speaking, it goes back uh, thousands of years. And that's why I don't think, and that's why they need to steal our stuff because I do believe that America, and I think this is true is kind of the capital world leader of innovation and creative mm-hmm. thinking. Um, yes. China is incredibly good at mass producing and producing quickly. Uh, we can't do that. <laughs> uh, we just don't have the manpower to. But because China seriously lacks in that creative original thought, they have to steal that original thought from us. Mm-hmm. And no one ever like thinks about it that way. And really, that's what they're doing. Um, now, might they use it on us someday? I mean, I don't know. They might. Um, are we trying to steal stuff from other countries? I'm 100 percent sure we are. Oh, yeah. but, <laughs> including labor from China. And that's half the reason we have a problem. But they <laughs> are really doing significant amount of damage to our research programs. And people have to realize, like, your taxes are basically being stolen because, you know, we're paying taxes to, like, you know, governmental programs and they're mm-hmm. stealing information that you know, governmental research has done. So now we have to go back to the drawing board and recreate these programs. And so I think people aren't thinking about it um, like that. And I don't understand why not. Um, I know recently I live in Texas. And so recently they closed down um, the consulate uh, in Houston. I'm in Dallas, but in Houston. And I'll be honest, I'm not sure that I have a huge problem with that. Um a lot of other people do, <laughs> um, but I don't um, because I think that is how we are language diplomatically is that's how it works. When you get caught stealing um, your your agents get PNG out of or persona non grata out of countries, your embassies get shut down, your consulates get shut down. I mean, this is not it's happened to us before, <laughs> um, you know, in other countries. And so I, I'm not that bothered by the fact that our consulate was shut down. Well, and it, it's important because it's about face. It It's embarrassing to them, so it is kind of a, a shot across their bow saying, uh-uh. Yes. Yeah, we deliberately embarrassed them doing that, and that is an an act of negotiation. It's high-level negotiation, but that kind of is. I agree. So where do we go from from here on that? And notice I... I know that before you've talked about coronavirus, for example, and I, I have a theory about that, which oh, is, okay. I don't know, in your intelligence, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I believe in Hanlon's razor. Have you ever heard of that? Mm-mm. Never ascribe to malice that which can be explained by stupidity. 
<laughs> okay. And my theory is that, yes, they did have a virus in the lab. I don't think they created it. I think it's just they collect different viruses. We do, too, and we study them. You went of to course. poison school, so I'm sure that you can confirm that there are things that we study. Yes. Um, I have a feeling that there was probably some sloppy procedure in the place, possibly somebody who was working in the area. They might have had something in their lab coat pocket, whatever, might have just thrown it in the trash as they were going out and have done it a hundred times. Oh, they forgot and just threw it away. I kind of feel like the whole thing could have started with that type of deal, which is not an intentional thing. Now, I do think they've acted in a manner to capitalize on it later, um, but I don't think they deliberately did it. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I don't. People get mad at me, you know, when I say, oh, I don't think they deliberately did it. How could you feel so strongly about the Chinese, but then say they did? Well, I'm not going to, like, give you misinformation. I definitely don't think that they deliberately. Let's be real. If they're going to launch biotech, it's not going to be with COVID. Because not at home. Don't poop where you eat. (laughs) What? (laughs) Don't poop where you eat. I mean, it's well, it's not even that. It's like COVID is not going to give you the most bang for your buck. Let's oh, let's true. be honest. Like, yes, unfortunately, people are dying. But the reality is, is most people are surviving that habit. And that really isn't the goal of, you know, these kinds of attacks. So you have to throw that out the window. And if they're going to manufacture something, it's not going to be COVID. I can guarantee you of that. Um, I don't think your scenario is not plausible. I think it it's completely plausible and one that I would absolutely give like merit to for sure. I, but I also believe in that it could have originated in their wet markets as well. I think, um, you know, China has a huge disease problem just in, there's a reason a lot of their population wears masks and, you know, and a lot of it is because their clean standards are different than ours. Um, I think we need to be shutting down those facilities, but also Wuhan, I think I read somewhere that it is home to level four, um, like bio labs, which is, you know, the lab we have that have like Ebola and, you know, hemorrhagic fever and those kinds of things. And so, yeah, they could have, I mean, Wuhan is home to that. So it, I think that that, that theory definitely has merit for sure. I agree with you. I really don't think it was intentional, but I think they lied about how many people died. And I think they lied. And I, and, and I think that they have lied about when this thing started. Um, and that's what I have a problem with. They um, also, didn't they shut down flights from Wuhan to the rest of China, but let people go in and out of Wuhan to the rest of the world? I believe so. I think in Which October. Is, that's a pretty malicious little move right there, too. That's what I have the bigger problem with, um, to be totally honest with you. And that's what I would like to see them punished for. Because if we live in a world that's interconnected, like we can't mm-hmm. be in isolation anymore. So it's not going to happen. Um, we have to be honest with each other. Like when Ebola, I mean, Ebola came to Dallas, <laughs> you know, and but we were very honest about when it came, how it came, what, you know, and so like, and we notified the rest of the world about it. And so I think- And you shut it down every, quickly. It, it yes, didn't go but anywhere. I think every country- if you are going to have allow international folks to come in and out of your country, you have a responsibility sure. to be honest um, in that reporting. And I think if they had been honest, a lot more Americans would still be alive. And I think that's the problem. Wow. We're in heated agreement. Oh, yay. <laughs> <laughs> well, fantastic. Uh, Tracy, this has been just amazing. I'd love to bring you back, uh, possibly with Sarah, if I could. Oh, yeah. 
I do a live stream where people can ask questions of the guests. You know, you bring your audience, I bring mine, and I think it'd be a real treat, especially having both of you um, okay. possibly in the, the near future for a live stream. I hope we might consider coming back and talking to the audience. Sure, I can um, chat with her a little later about that. Awesome. Well, she already agreed to do one on her own, so I think oh. having you both <laughs> would be like a um, twice as good. Well, I'm happy it. to do it as well, so you've got us both. Fantastic. And the book is The Unexpected Spy, which is a great book. I've really, really enjoyed it. I've got an um, audio. Thank you for having an audio because... Oh, thank you. You're welcome. It really makes a big difference in accessibility for the rest of us and we can find you at tracywalder.com and also yes. on twitter you're very active i believe at tracy underscore walder tracy thank you so much for coming up thank you for having me all right wasn't she fantastic i really appreciate you coming and checking this out and again there's a live stream with her and sarah carlson on my youtube channel We'll just say ericunley.com and save time. Go there and check it out. And I want to shout out a couple of friends of mine, starting with Jason DeFilippo of Grumpy Old Geeks. Jason has been such a, a great friend and resource and everything else. And Christopher Lockhead, and he is with Follow Your Different and Lockhead on Marketing. He is a legend and has been profoundly influential to me and helping me learn a lot of things. Both his podcasts are fantastic. And if you're not sick of hearing it, both Jason and Chris Lockett also have appeared in live streams on my YouTube channel. I'm really proud to have them. Thank you all so much, and I'll see you next time.